Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. This special episode of the Slate Political Gab Fest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Buy and print official U.S. postage using your own computer and printer and save up to 50% compared to a postage meter. Sign up for Stamps.com and get a four-week trial and a $110 bonus offer when you use the promo code GABFEST. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to a GABFEST extra, extra, extra special edition for March the 16th, 2016. It's the Super Tuesday Part 3, is it, John? Part 2? Part 4? I don't know. I'm, I'm, uh, I couldn't sympathize more with the need and desire to to name these Tuesdays, but I think once you get into doing sequels, Super Tuesday Part 3, you start to lose the thread a little bit. So the Ohio and Florida, um, Tuesday is the way I think about it, because those states mean so much in terms of the primary, but also obviously the general. Yeah, it was. I mean, this was pretty darn super. This is a lot superer than some of the earlier super ones. These were big, big states. Anyway, I'm David Plotz of Atlas Obscura, joined uh, telephonically by John Dickerson of Face the Nation. Uh, It is Wednesday morning that we're talking. So we're actually talking before President Obama names his Supreme Court nominee. So we're not going to be talking about that. We're talking about the Super Tuesday results. Um, so, John, as as we are looking at the results now, Trump won huge in Florida, knocked Marco Rubio out of the race with that. He won Illinois and North Carolina. He is neck and neck with Ted Cruz in Missouri. And John Kasich, of course, won Ohio, his home state, with a almost majority, but not even a majority there. So on the Republican side, we have now a three-person race in, with Kasich, Cruz, and Trump. Rubio is gone. Who won last night? Well, I think Trump won last night, um, but he won. If, if he could have he essentially put it away, and he didn't put it away. So it was a, it was a big victory for him, but with an asterisk, which is that there's a little speed bump now in, in his march to the 1,237 delegates he needs. The question is whether that speed bump can be turned into an actual obstacle, which is what those who want to stop him by denying him the majority of delegates before he gets to the convention in Cleveland want to try and do. And losing the 66 delegates in the winner-take-all race in Ohio helps make it a little bit more difficult for him going forward. He has to win 55% of the remaining delegates. Now, the good news for him is that he ended up winning in Illinois and North Carolina, where Cruz had tried to make a last-minute push, and there were signs in the exit polling that he actually did well with those who made up their their minds in the days before the voting in Illinois, Missouri, and North Carolina. So that was an interesting and smart gambit on, on Cruz's part, but it didn't pay off. And it seems pretty clear that Kasich is going to continue. Cruz is certainly going to continue. So we are going to have three people competing. 
isn't there an argument to make that the having the three of them in there actually strengthens Trump, that Trump is going to be able to split the anti-Trump vote and and this puts him in a stronger position than just being against Cruz would be? I think you can argue it two different ways. I think there is that it's a, certainly is a valid argument. I think the, the alternative argument is that if Kasich and uh, Cruz collude and Kasich runs in the states where he has strength and can take delegates away from Trump and Cruz runs in the states where he has strength and in a one-on-one uh, competition against Trump, that potentially they could, because the goal here is not getting past the threshold. Neither one of them can do it. Cruz has a, put out a strategy memo in which he talks about being able to get to the 1,262, giving him a little, a little margin, to, but no, he's not going to happen because um, look at the way he's performed in the states where he was supposed to perform well. The Georgia, Tennessee, Alabama, Arkansas, then the next week in Mississippi, all states that were originally part of the original Cruz plan, Trump won. Yesterday, Cruz was supposed to do well in those states that he didn't. So the notion that he would suddenly snap in and get to 1262 is, is not possible. They could collude. The problem with collusion is it's a little too cute, and it is a kind of cleaner break if it's just Cruz v. Trump. The problem and challenge with Cruz v. Trump is Cruz is not going to have a chance to do that well in Pennsylvania and New York, Connecticut and Maryland, states where Kasich actually is closer to the electorate that votes there and would have a better shot. So, Is there evidence of Cruz-Kasich collusion? Did they collude in, in this uh, round of voting yesterday? There is a little in the sense that Kasich spent his time in Ohio and Cruz spent his time in those other states. They don't necessarily have to collude officially. It's just they run where their strengths are. I mean, it sounded like Rubio effectively tried to collude with Kasich directly and and told people explicitly to vote for Kasich in Ohio, I think hoping to get reciprocity from Kasich over Florida, which he didn't get. Are we likely to see something similar where Cruz tells people, if you're in New York, don't vote for me, vote for Kasich. And Kasich tells people, if you're in Montana, don't. I don't, don't think we'll see that explicit recommendation. Neither one of them bit when Rubio suggested doing it. So I would be surprised if they said it out loud. But yet it might be so much a part of the kind of public conversation that it would be that would be sort of the, the message would get across. And certainly in the post game or in the press conferences and interviews after the results last night, the Cruz team was really pushing to get Kasich out of the race. So overtly, they're saying get out of the race. Some people I've talked to, not on the you know, not for quotation seem to be okay with Kasich being in the race. I think we're still sort of figuring out how that shakes out. I think also we have, in addition to the collusion, we have a few more things that could be done. I mean, one of the candidates, Cruz or Kasich, could come out and say, I'm not going to support Donald Trump if he's the nominee, ratcheting up the break with Trump to create an environment in which people really had to make a choice. We've been now through two weeks of anti-Trump ads and anti-Trump efforts by the Never Trump movement, and they kind of haven't worked. Kasich won Ohio, but that was his home state. So there needs, if you're in the Never Trump movement, you need a new thing to rally around. And a big public statement by somebody, one of the candidates or, you know, a a GOP luminary, and there aren't that many who would be willing to do it, 
would kind of bring the focus back on how objectionable Trump is, which is what Cruz and Kasich need. Let's talk about Kasich's Ohio victory for a minute, because I think for me, it's hard for me to judge how significant this is for the election as a whole. Does this signify, oh, once people get to know Kasich, he is indeed the strongest candidate and uh, can run anywhere and can can win uh, even in a relatively conservative state uh, as he did in Ohio because people knew him well and if he just gets the chance to be out in the world, he's going to win? Or is this just completely anomalous? It's the only state where he could do this because, of course, he's a native son. He's been representing them for 30-odd years. And really the mood of the electorate outside of his home state is so anti-establishment that he has no hope when even in even in a Connecticut or in a in a New Jersey? Probably the latter. Kasich could make his case to those other states if they allowed him to be governor in those states for four years, you know, or six years. Now, the hometown advantage didn't help Marco Rubio. No one is running in the Kasich lane anymore. There's the Trump lane, there's the conservative lane, which is Cruz, and then there's the mainstream Republican lane, which is Kasich, which is also not just a kind of your view on policy, but it's also your view on the future of the Republican Party. Uh, Kasich is the only one of the three running who believes in what used to be the consensus view of the Washington elites, which is that the Republican Party needs to reach out to younger, non-white voters if it's going to be a majority party in the future and or if it's going to reverse the fact that it's lost five of the last six popular elections. I, I, let me, if I can interrupt you, I mean, although yeah. one point that puts uh, that in slight shadow is that if, if you add up Kasich and Rubio's totals in Illinois, Missouri, and North Carolina, they still would have finished third. Like, even if Kasich had picked up all of Rubio's votes in, in Illinois, he would have finished third. If he picked up all of Rubio's votes in, in Missouri, he'd finish third. If he picked up all of uh, Rubio's votes in North Carolina, he would finish third. So the, the total sum of the Kasich plus Rubio um, group is is still around less than 30 percent in at least much of the country. Yeah, I, I, right. But the um, states that are coming up are not like Mississippi. In Pennsylvania and New York, those are states in which a Rubio-Kasich combination of votes might do better than Trump. And now, I don't think that's true. I mean, I don't. one of the reasons Trump is, even though his hill got a little bit steeper last night, the reason that uh, he's still in a pretty strong position is he, he, he has been able to weather a pretty good amount of attacks over the last many months. And his support still seems pretty durable. The notion that it would suddenly become undurable is hard to imagine. And he did marginally better. In some states, he did very well with late deciding voters. But even in the states where he didn't do, didn't beat his opponents among those who decided in the last few days, he did better in those states in the last few day voters than he has done in previous states, which means he's grow, he has the ability to grow as well, even as the field shrinks. All right, John, before we get to the Democrats, let's just talk a bit about the landscape over the next uh, couple of months. Because after yesterday, we have a bit of a break. There isn't the same superness in the next, in the coming weeks that there has been over the last three weeks. What's coming up, and when can we expect to see more movement in delegates? Well, yeah, so there, the Stop Trump movement is trying to deny him the, those numbers, but it's going to take us a while whether we know if, if that denial is going to happen. And we basically have a, the schedule elongates from here. So we have Arizona on the 22nd. And then you've got to wait all the way to the 5th of April for Wisconsin. And then after that, you've got to wait 12 days till New York on the 19th. 
Uh, and then on the 26th, you have Connecticut, Delaware, Maryland, Pennsylvania, Rhode Island. So this goes all the way till the 7th of June on the Republican side. And so I think we're going all the way to the 7th of June because the 7th of June has five states for Republicans, um, six for Democrats. And it includes California and New Jersey, which are pretty, pretty big states. You know, it, it's going to take a while. And the really interesting question is what the hell happens during those periods of pause? I mean, what, how, where is the conversation fishtail? And we don't know. And, and we're going to see also, I think, one thing to watch in terms of this question of a contested convention. I mean, an open convention is being talked about by the anti-Trump forces as a kind of wonderful, not a wonderful thing, but it's a, it's a kind of like the beginning to a solution. I mean, it's the beginning to the solution in the way that open heart surgery is the beginning to a solution in that it's a really radical, bloody, painful, and you know, potentially catastrophic event. There will be a lot of talk in the, from now until Cleveland about what is precedent, what precedents are real, what would constitute stealing the delegates from Trump, what, you know, kind of what the purpose of a party is. There's going to be a lot of that going on as both sides, both the Trump side and the stop Trump side, try to fight for narrative control of the situation going into Cleveland, because if you want to stop Trump, Presumably, you want to do it with as little damage as possible because you're going to have to put the party back together again. And just some of the reasons you'd want to stop Trump and not necessarily fall in line is 30% of Ohio voter Republican voters yesterday said they would never vote for Trump. 41% said they would, they would think about voting for a third party. Uh, his negatives are historically high for, for human candidates. So he has real liabilities both within his own party and the general election. Yeah, I wonder, I mean... Once you have a nominee, if he is your nominee, whether Republicans will just say, you know what, I'm going to, I'll vote for him because, because they'll coalesce around it. We have an extremely strong two-party system in this country and people increasingly vote for parties and they increasingly are aligned with parties. It would be, I mean, he, he's, he's a historically terrible, uh, presidential candidate and and he he's unprecedented so maybe people's behavior would change but i i do think that the strength of the party system is uh, in his favor if he does end up getting the nomination here's the big reason that you would want to coalesce behind a nominee no matter who he is and that's whatever a republican president does they may very well be in the position to name one or several supreme court picks given the frozen nature of um, legislation and activity in Washington, the courts and the Supreme Court in particular have a much stronger role in our lives than legislation does at the moment. And so, you know, that, that'll really matter. Who the warm body is in the, in the chair will matter. This special episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Stamps.com. Do you have lots of free time that you're just waiting to occupy with tedious errands? Of course you don't. You're busy. And the free time you do have should be spent doing things you enjoy. That's why there's Stamps.com. With Stamps.com, you can buy and print official U.S. postage right from your desk. It's easy. Just use your own computer and printer and get the right postage for any letter or package. Plus, Stamps.com is more powerful than a postage meter at just a fraction of the cost. You even get special postage discounts you can't get at the post office. 
Right now, sign up for Stamps.com and use promo code GABFEST for a four-week trial plus a $110 bonus offer, including postage and a digital scale. Don't wait. Go to Stamps.com. Before you do anything else, click on the microphone at the top of the homepage and type in GABFEST. That's Stamps.com. Enter GABFEST. All right, let's turn to the Democrats. Hillary Clinton had a really good night. She won Florida in a romp. She narrowly won Illinois. She won North Carolina pretty easily, and she won Ohio pretty easily. Missouri, she is likely to win, uh, though at this moment it's, it's pretty close with Bernie Sanders. Is this it, John, in terms of the, the contested race? Although it was kind of over before, but this feels like, okay, now it's, now it's pretty locked, right? I think that's right. I think, you have, I think basically the way to think about her is that she is, uh, she is basically the presumptive nominee unless there is a catastrophic surprise event. You know, she has three times more delegates than Barack Obama had at this point as he was leading her. She also has the superdelegates, and she proved... What they were worried about is that there would be a repeat of Michigan, that there would be something in the air that surprises them so that the truths about the future state would be challenged by reality, and they weren't. The question is now, what does Sanders do? Not whether he drops out or not. I think he goes all the way to the convention, but I think the question is, does he change his tone? Does he make his campaign a message campaign, or does he keep you know, attacking Hillary Clinton and turn this into a... Uh, you know, something a little bit more aggressive or keep it being aggressive? Or does he just talk about the issues he cares about and, and sort of lets it play out? Uh, why was it that she was able to be so strong in Ohio and Illinois, which are not all that different from Michigan? I mean, I guess they're slightly less industrial, but, but they're not hugely different. Yeah. Um, the, the younger voters may not have turned out in as large numbers in um Ohio, as turned out in Michigan, um, we always knew she was going to do well in Florida. It had an older, you know, older population and a large share of the non-white vote, two groups that she does very well with. I'm not sure what the answer is in Illinois and Ohio, um, other than she, you know, maximized with the African Americans and was not swamped among kids. I, we'll have to see if what the turnout effect was, because one of the arguments from the Clinton campaign is that her, or from the candidate herself, was that her supporters got complacent in Michigan. So maybe that lack of complacency turned people out again. But I haven't actually looked enough into the Ohio numbers. Uh, We'll have to save those for uh, our conversation on the uh, GabFest this week. Uh, Okay. I love it when we save conversations for the GabFest. Do you think that Democratic voters or the media are going to be able to maintain interest in this election on the Democratic side for the next few months? It's been good. I think it's been very good for Hillary Clinton to have had this period of of intense conflict and contest with Bernie Sanders. It's drawn attention to her. It's forced her to be a better campaigner. But now she's going to roll in and win it. Is there going to be uh, the kind of attention and interest that will that will help uh, distract people from Donald Trump, for lack of a better word? No, there won't be the kind of interest and attention that there's been on the Republican side. Hillary Clinton's pivot to to taking on Trump uh, might provide some new level of interest to the extent that it's in both of their advantage now to fight each other. Uh, And what does that look like? And that does change the shape of the race a little bit. Uh, And so that might gain her some new attention as she 
engages with the person who gets the most attention in politics right now. That does it for this GabFest special. Uh, John and I will be back tomorrow with a regular GabFest. We'll talk about more about the race. We'll talk about the violence at Trump's rallies or the, the tension at Trump's rallies. And we're going to, of course, talk about the new Supreme Court nominee, too. So uh, thanks for listening to the GabFest Extra. We'll talk to you soon. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. we prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C. on Tuesday, May the 14th. My colleague, Mark Joseph Stern, and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice. All about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it. And we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets.